0: The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolutions on the way. But I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the brain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Paul Mill, he went with Danny Baker. you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker. I'm seeing that a dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is my colleague and friend, Anders Ravik-Jupskas. Anders is a senior researcher and the deputy director of the Center for Research on Extremism, or Rex, at the University of Oslo, where I also hold an affiliation. As probably the foremost scholar of Norwegian party politics, he's the perfect guest for the second special election edition of Radikal, which focuses on the Norwegian election of September 13th, 2021. Welcome to the podcast, Anders.
1: Thank you, Cas. It's a pleasure to be here. So, first, what is the first sports team you ever supported? So, this is a bit embarrassing, but but the answer is AC Milan in Italy. And so, football wasn't that big in Norway in the 1990s. So, I watch you know UK teams and Italian teams, and I just love the great players on Milan. So, everything was good, I guess, until I realized that Berlusconi was owning the club.
0: <laughs> yes. What is your favorite political song?
1: That would be Killing in the Name of by Rage Against the Machine from 1992. I used to play that in the punk rock band I played in in the 1990s. Awesome. And
0: finally, what's your favorite political
1: book? There's not really any classic that I would mention, but there was one recently published book called Ingen man er in a region, so No Man is an Island. It's written by former political science student Jürgen Vatnefriednes, who is now the general manager at Utøya, the island where the mass shooting of young political activists of the Labour Party took place about now really? a decade ago. So this book was published this year, and it really kind of shows the difficulty of taking back the island, which the youth wing very quickly decided that they wanted to do. Of course, this whole process being very difficult due to the physical damages and the psychological trauma that they experienced, and there was a lot of protests against taking back the island. So the book really shows how he himself, as an individual, was able to maneuver in this very difficult landscape. And and I think it really kind of shows how you need some personal skills in order to make that happen. It's been a great success how the island has turned out to be. Great. So
0: let's start with sketching the context of these elections. Like all countries, Norway is still in the pandemic, but the outgoing Norwegian government also had a bumpy ride. So maybe you can place that first.
1: Right. So, I mean, as you said, we're still in the pandemic, although we're doing quite good in Norway, I guess. If you look at things like, you know, the Bloomsburg's COVID resilience ranking, Norway is on top, right? So the Scandinavian nation has been good at providing vaccines to a great share of the population and cap fatalities at the very low level. So that is one of the reasons why I guess, you know, COVID didn't really turn out a major issue in the elections. Most people in Norway are quite happy with how the government has dealt with this crisis, although there's been some disagreement on the economic support that the state has provided to, of course, companies that have suffered during the crisis. And then there's been criticism from the left that the economic support has been given without any assurance that they would be either repaid or used to secure jobs instead of ending up with uh, having a profit for the company of owners and things like that. Instead, I guess the elections have been more or less about the normal issues in Norwegian party politics, mainly about the emerging centre-periphery cleavage, which I guess we'll talk more about later. But after having the right-wing government for eight years, the first time in post-war Norway, that the conservatives were not only re-elected, which they have been before, but that they were also able to stay in government first, together with the right-wing populist party, the Progress Party, And then later during the period, with all parties in the right-wing bloc, if you like, together with the Liberals and the small Christian People's Party, a small Christian Democratic Party. And then towards the end of the period, the Progress Party, the Populist Party, left the government, and the three others remained. But the point is that the Prime Minister from the Conservative Party, the party leader there, Anna Solberg, has remained Prime Minister throughout the period. And after eight years, people were partly tired, as is the case in many countries where, you know, we've been in government for many years. But also quite a number of people were increasingly upset with the right-wing policies of the government, leading to a repolitization and increased saliency of most notably the center periphery cleavage, benefiting the agrarian party in Norway, but also increasing dissatisfaction with the rising inequalities in Norway, even if the levels of equality is not high compared to many other countries. But it's been increasing over the last years, and that has also benefited the left-wing party. And then on top of that, we have the climate issue and environmental challenges, being a country dependent on oil production. Of course, this is one of those issues that the environmental-friendly parties are mobilizing on the importance of having a green transition of the economy.
0: Okay, so you had a campaign that was more about socioeconomic and environmental issues than about the pandemic or the classic sociocultural ones like identity security What is your main takeaway of the Norwegian election?
1: The first one, I guess, is that there's a quite significant shift to the left. So all the opposition parties have now almost two-thirds of the seats in parliament. There's an increase in the support of not only the Socialist Party, which increased their support by 1.6 percentage point, but also the parliamentary breakthrough of the far-left party, the party red, which is to the left of the Socialist Party. They had only one MP from before who was directly elected in Oslo, the capital region. But now they passed the electoral threshold of of four percent, gaining 4.7 in total. So the two parties to the left have become stronger, and then on top of that, you know, there was also an increase in the support of the Green Party, which even if they like to present themselves as being independent of the two blocks, you know they're neither left nor right; they're green. But if you ask the members, ask their voters, you know, they're typically leaning towards the left. And there are quite a few members who have been previously member of the left-wing parties, and they tend to govern together with the left in the big cities. So the first takeaway is that there's shift to the left and there's fragmentation on the left. Because the Labour Party, which is, you know, by far the largest party, still did their second worst result in post-war Norway. But they're now very happy. They're much bigger than the others on the left, and they will get the prime minister. And then I guess the third point to mention is the winner of the election, which was the agrarian center party, gaining 13.5%, second best in post-war Norway. And it's mainly the result of increased salience of the center periphery cleavage, which has a long history in Norwegian politics. So normally the party would get less than 10%, but this time then they got 13.5%. The main reason is that they have been the kind of main opposition party against the right-wing parties and the kind of centralizing reforms that they have carried out throughout the last eight years.
0: So when we talk about center periphery in the Norwegian context, as you have said, that has historically played out primarily on the question of EU membership where the more urban regions were pro and the rural regions were against. That was not on the agenda this time around. So how did the centre-periphery cleavage play out in this election?
1: Right. So the thing is that, of course, the Conservative Party being the most pro-EU party in Norway, but also, you know, they're bigger in the biggest cities, even if they have strongholds also at some more rural areas. What they've been pushing for throughout these eight years are several reforms, which have have centralised public sector. There's been a police reform. There's been a reform within higher education. A lot of hospitals have been closed down in rural areas. And, you know, usually the argument has been that, you know, we need bigger units in order to improve the quality of the services. But at the same time, of course, people feel that these public services are disappearing from their surroundings. So it's, it's this general feeling of the state withdrawing or not being present in the local community anymore. And on top of that, there's also been more kind of administrative reforms in a sense that a lot of municipalities and regions have been merged into bigger units. And that also not only affects the job market for people in the rural areas, but it also challenged the identity many people have.
0: Now, the right-wing populist Progress Party left the coalition in January 2020, after many years together with the Conservative Party. And it has changed leaders, yet it still lost big. What is going on there?
1: So I think the story about the Progress Party is, uh, I mean, first, it was a story of success. Everyone expected they to perform much worse as they would be more responsible rather than responsive as Peter Mayer would have framed it. So they did well in the first four years when they only governed together with the Conservative Party. So there were only two parties in government during the first four years between 2013 and 17. And we actually did some interesting membership surveys at the time showing that the members of the Progress Party were equally happy about the government as the members of the Conservative Party. Of course, they had a lot of ministers. They were quite visible in the public debate. And I think also the refugee crisis, the so-called refugee crisis, which in Norway was also in comparative terms quite small, but there was a increase of the number of asylum seekers from about 10,000 to about 30,000 in 2015, and that clearly kind of helped putting the immigration issue on the agenda. And the electoral surveys from 2017 show that for the first time in history, immigration was the main concern among Norwegian voters in 2017, kind of resembling what happened in Denmark in 2001, where the Danish People's Party ending up being the support party and the right-wing coalition got elected also in Denmark. So I mean, they really benefited from having their own issues on top of the agenda. But then... The main mission of the outgoing prime minister from the Conservative Party was always to bring the two centre-right parties, the Liberals and the Christians, together with the Populist Party to the right of them. Bring all of them into government, have a majority government, make sure that the negotiations would take place inside the government instead of outside in Parliament, which always created a lot of fuss in the public debate. But I guess she kind of underestimated the fact that when the discussions were taken inside the government, it was also easier for the opposition to attack the government. And it was more difficult for the smaller parties and the populist party in particular to signal to the voters what their key issues they wanted to put forward. All of a sudden, they was this was a bit more blurry, more vague, a bit more opaque than it had been before. So what happens is that there were several other political alternatives capitalizing ongoing resentment. So we had a single-issue movement against road tolls, which had previously been a key issue for the Progress Party that emerged in the local elections in 2019, securing a lot of votes in the big cities. We had the center party, the agrarian party, gradually picking up on the populist agenda, criticizing the urban elite in Oslo for being detached to normal people in the rural areas. And all of a sudden, it was very difficult for the Progress Party, the Right-wing populist party, to counter this because you know they were in government. They had promised the voters that they wouldn't be in government just for you know the sake of driving nice cars and you know having having power. But all it was difficult for them to defend themselves against this populist critique from the other side, if you like. And then on top of that, you also had the red, the far left party, using issues like salaries for politicians presenting themselves as something different as the only anti-system alternative. So, you know, by and large, they lost this protest profile. They decided to leave government as a result of that. So in 2020, the party left government and the party leader who brought them into government stepped down and everyone kind of expected them to regain some strength. But a month later, the pandemic hit. So all of a sudden, the debate was no longer about immigration. It was difficult for them to set the agenda because everything was controlled by the government and it was only about healthcare issues.
0: Right. So assuming that Norway now will have a left-wing government, the Progress Party will be in opposition, but together with the Conservative Party, how do you expect the Progress Party is going to position itself? Is it going to moderate? Is it going to radicalize? or is it just going to muddle through?
1: It's always difficult to uh, predict, right? As a political scientist, I thought we learned not to do that. But if you force me to predict, I guess I'd say that it's most likely that they were radicalized a bit. The previous leader, Siv Jensen, was always considered a more pragmatic politician, a person that was uh, necessary to create good chemistry with, with the other party leaders on the center-right, whereas List have, has always been known as a much more provocative, populist, if you like, but also a person who would, you know, exploit social media much more, communicate directly to the voters, criticizing the media for being left wing biased. Uh, Whenever she's attacked or criticized of everything, she rapidly framing it as a witch hunt. So she has a more radical profile. And there's also an interesting development that the party has been challenged also to the right by a party called the Demokratna, the Democrats. So the thing is that the Progress Party, some of its grassroots are organized and they would be part of this kind of alternative media sphere in Norway. And at some point, there's some local branches also who were more inspired by Trump and Steve Bannon and, and other figures in, in the US. And they were at some point expelled from the party because there's always been mm-hmm. a tension within the party between the more liberal or libertarian faction and the more a nationalist faction in the party. And this time, you know, the current leader has been able to receive support from all these different factions. But right before she became the leader, she publicly said that the uh, national conservative faction in the party, uh, that she didn't want them in the party, and that even the concept of national conservatism reminded her about national socialism. And of course, wow. these groups were incredibly upset. And some initial polls afterwards show that there were thousands of voters moving to the Democrats in so this party has become, you know, stronger. They didn't enter the parliament, but they have some local strongholds, a few places, and they're kind of capable of picking up disgruntled Progress Party voters. So I, I think they're very afraid of coming seen as too moderates in the coming years. I mean, she even said, you know, that the next years they will invest everything in rebuilding their organization and kind of going back to the roots, meaning becoming a protest party again.
0: Right. And so there are a lot of similarities here with Denmark, at least at first sight. You have a social democratic party that electorally loses a little bit, but politically wins by becoming the biggest party. You have real left-wing parties that are winning. As a consequence, the left block overall wins. You have a radical right party that is declining. What are the similarities and differences with Denmark and also particularly with regard to the Social Democrats in Denmark? They have pivoted very strong to the right on social cultural issues. Did the Norwegian Social Democratic Party also pivot to the right social culturally, or is it still more a traditional Social Democratic Party?
1: You know, it, I think the dynamic is quite similar, but the main difference is that the conservatives in Norway didn't buy into all the, you know, nativist politics as did the liberal conservative parties in Denmark in the early 2000s. So the dynamic is the same in the sense that Labour and Conservatives are quite similar and none of them campaign on, you know, neither nativist nor liberal immigration policies. There was an article written many years ago who called it the preemptive consensus. This idea that we all try to be somewhat strict, but not too strict. But, you know, we're not going to buy into this immigration is a threat frame that is promoted by the nativist parties in particular. But immigration is one of those issues that there is tension within the left bloc which is, again, similar to Denmark. Though the main difference between Denmark and Norway on this issue is that within the left bloc in Denmark, you have parties like Radikale Venstre, radical left, which is left on social-cultural issues, but very much the right on economic issues. That party has aligned with the left in general, whereas in Norway, their sister party, Venstre, has aligned with the right. So in Norway, the main challenge for the left bloc is that both the Agrarian Party and the Social Democrats are somewhat strict I guess particularly factions within the agrarian party are quite strict on immigration policies, even to the point where they're borderline nativist rhetoric. And they need now to collaborate with the rest of the left bloc, which is, of course, far more liberal. But again, you know, in general, social cultural issues are just not as salient in Norway as they are in Denmark, which is an important difference.
0: Now, you have spoken already about the big winner, which is this red party. Can you say a little bit more about them and perhaps also for international listeners or for like Dutch listeners who don't remember anymore what a left party looks like? In Norway, you have Social Democrats, you have Socialists, and you have the Red Party. What are the differences there and what did the Red Party offer that the Socialists and the Greens and the Social Democrats didn't offer yet?
1: Right, right. So uh, yeah, there's a quite crowded space on the left now in Norway with this increased fragmentation. Red is a relatively new party. It was founded in 2007, but its organizational history goes way back back to the 1970s. So it's a former Marxist-Leninist party decided and tried to create a more pragmatic sectarian party in 2007. And it's quite similar to the Socialist Party in many respects, like they would have more progressive taxation, they want a ban on profit in welfare sector, they're against Norwegian membership in NATO. And things like that. So in many respects, the difference between the two is a matter of degree, rather than fundamentally different type of policies. So red wants to increase taxes by 40 billion, the socialists by 22. Big banks should be nationalized. There's more focus on getting rid of capitalism and democratize the economic system. Both have links to trade unions. But on that point, I guess, Red have more of an image as a working class party. They want to rebrand themselves as the kind of true social democratic party of the 21st century, which also means that even if they themselves would say that they have a quite progressive climate or green agenda, they don't really talk that much about green politics uh, mm-hmm. and are wanting to appeal to the working class. So it's mainly economic issues, privatization, safer jobs, focus on increasing the employment in society. And, and of course, in many cases, just attacking the you know, they even some years ago had what they called a rich safari. So they would take the media and other people and go to the <laughs> western part of Oslo, traveling around in buses, showing all the houses of where the rich people would live as an alternative to the populist leader who would go to su- suburban areas of Swedish towns like Malmö to show like the effects <laughs> of integration. Then he would you know, bring the media to the western part of Oslo where the rich people have gigantic houses as a symptom of inequality in Norwegian society. And the final thing, I guess, the difference. So, I mean, they're they're more left-wing on economic issues, perhaps a bit less green on those issues. None of them really focus that much on social-cultural issues. Again, knowing that these tend to benefit the right-wing populist party when the debate shifts to social-cultural issues. And the final thing, I mean, the difference between the Red and the Socialist Party is that the Socialist Party, after all, entered government in 2005 and governed for eight years so the red part is now very much kind of promoting an image of them being different, being more of a protest alternative. They want to work outside of the parliament together with movements, people's movements, you know, the environmental movements, peace movements, feminist movement. Uh, trade unions and not entering governments. They say you know, they, they don't want to be the managers of capitalism. So they're very much inspired by Denmark and the unity list and its list in Denmark, who mm-hmm. uh, have been able to negotiate a quite significant deal with the current prime minister from the Social Democratic Party, but without having the ambitions of entering government themselves. It's a very new generation of politicians, the people that have been successful now. There's been like tensions within the party between the old cadres of the Marxist-Leninist party and the more recent generations. So it's one of the youngest parliamentary groups in history of Stortinget. The mean age of the eight people they got elected is 36.
0: So what can we expect of the next government in regard to previous government? Like Norway is not particularly polarized. So A shift from the right to the left will probably not mean a sea change. Where do you think we'll see the most important changes in which type of policies?
1: The campaign slogan of the Labour Party was also, I guess, to some extent, influenced by the ideology of populism. So the slogan was, now it's the time for ordinary people. So I guess they would immediately and very much also pushed by the other radical left parties. There will be a shift in the taxation policies and increased support public welfare. I mean, one of the things that I mentioned before, both the Socialist Party and the Red Party is very concerned with is the increasing profit within public welfare, where the state pays, but the private companies are the ones running the business. So they would partly invest, of course, in the activities, you know, like childcare services or kindergartens, but at the same time, being able to profit out of it. So this is one of the things I think that they will be very concerned with. And then, you know, the agrarians, if they were to support the government, there would need to be some shift in the geographical inequalities. So there will be investments in the rural areas across Norway. And I think finally, climate change is a key issue for many of the parties, perhaps with the exception of the center party, which have largely left its previously more greener agenda. So, But all the other four parties, the left-wing parties, the Greens, and the Social Democrats. I mean, one of the things that the leader of the Labour Party said at the election eve as the final party leader entered the podium to speak, was to say that he had promised his grandchildren that he would do everything he could to make sure that Norway kind of speeds up its transition to a more greener economy. Again, speaking of things which are similar to Denmark, that is very much the agenda of the current prime minister in Denmark too, Mette Frederiksen from the Social Democratic Party, you know, to decentralize politics, to have a transition to greener economy, and to decrease the rising inequalities in Scandinavian society but then
0: without the nativism that comes with that in Denmark.
1: That's true, yeah. So the Labour Party in Norway is largely happy with how it is. So they will do everything they can to make sure that it won't become politicized again.
0: Okay, thanks so much for coming on the show, Anders. Thank you. Anders Jupskas is on Twitter, although seemingly reluctantly. And you can follow him at at Jupskas. This was another episode of Radical, the podcast on the radical aspects of music, politics and sports hosted by me, Cas Mudde. The music is from the Godets with their classic song, Karl Marx supported Millwall. I want to thank Tarek Sidik for helping me with the editing of today's episode. If you want to know more about Radical, visit our website at www.radicalpodcast.com. Radikal spelled R-A-D-I-K-A-A-L. And if you like the podcast, please rate and subscribe. Also, please share it with friends and on social media. Thank you for listening. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you pull me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, so come up to... Paul- He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker. I see him down a bunker. Playing with his beard. No wonder that
1: has capital turned out a little weird.